Hello and welcome to Oddments, the podcast for curious people and curious things. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time we'll answer the age-old question, paper or plastic? Explore beneath the sea, try to tongue-twist a computer, and learn the real reason that the Titanic movie happened. But first, let's see what's on the road with us. The traffic is heavy and you're stuck behind a big tanker truck. You can't see around it, but you can see the words PJ's Trucking on the back. Below that is a red diamond sticker that has flames on top of it. The numbers 1202 are clearly visible, and a number 3 sits below. What does it mean? In the interest of helping first responders deal with shipping disasters at sea, on the rails, and on the roads, the United Nations has developed an emergency response guide. Within, every hazardous chemical is cataloged, and each substance is given a number. In our example above, the 1202 refers to heating oil, a substance you're likely to see on northern roads in the winter. 1170 would indicate ethyl alcohol, which is common on train cars in the Midwest, and 2790 would be acetic acid, or vinegar. For each number, there is a corresponding material data safety sheet that goes into exhaustive detail on precautions and proper cleanup protocols. The numbers go all the way to 3500, but numbers alone aren't that useful. A truck is on fire with the number 0081 on it. What would you do? You'd look for the little number at the bottom of the sign, which in this case would be 1, for explosive. Hopefully you'd be running before you finish reading it. The small number is the hazard identifier, which gives the most important information about the substance. Our 0081 Class 1 example tells us that the cargo is blasting explosives, with the 1 telling us that it's likely to explode. Class 2 is for all gases. Class 3 is for flammable liquids. Class 4 is for flammable solids, but not things like wood or paper. This is reserved for pyrophoric materials that catch fire when exposed to air, such as iron sulfide. Class 5 is for oxidizers. Class 6 is for poisonous and infectious substances. Class 7 is reserved for radioactive materials. Class 8 refers to corrosives, like lye. And Class 9 means it's dangerous and weird. This is a catch-all for things that aren't commonly transported, but that still present a hazard. Some examples include asbestos, self-inflating life rafts, and dry ice. They will not have a UN number, but are usually displayed on a sign that looks like a referee. You may notice that some signs are different colors, or that there are decimal points after the small number. This is a bit more information that's important to first responders. Class 2 for gases is all well and good, but there's a completely different response required for a natural gas accident than there is for a chlorine or nitrogen leak. The decimals inform whether the gas is toxic, flammable, or harmless. If you're interested in learning more on what you're sharing the road with, have a passenger search their app store for UN numbers or dangerous cargo, and you'll see a variety of apps that can help identify nearby driving hazards. You can also ask Siri, what is UN number 1202? And she'll usually give you the right answer. Looking. My web search turned this up. And once you've got it down, why not play a game on those long road trips? Fellow curious person Tim Farley has created a game called Hazmat Bingo. And you'll find the link in our show notes. Or you can just Google Hazmat Bingo and you'll find it on the Half Bakery. 
Thank you. Argus camera up a little. Just a smidgen. Generally, in deep water ships, they write themselves. The Bismarck went in upside down, righted itself. The Yorktown went in upside down. The shallower ones can't, don't have time to write them. So Lusitania didn't, Andrea Doria. Any, anything in shallow water, they, they don't write themselves. But deep water ones, about 5,000 feet, like here, they write themselves. Because they remember once they're fully flooded where the bottom's heavy and they flip back. And drop down a smidgen and pan up. The time is There's now the 8 cutting edge of the bow. Sunday, July 6, 2014. Okay. Nice. All right, coming out wide. See the tether snatcher on the starboard railing. But I think we're good. Because as you pivot, you push your tether further out away. Now, this is a lovely shot. It's beautiful. Would you like to explore under the sea? Modern technology allows us to do this right now from the comfort of our computer or desk. Robert Ballard is a well-known name among undersea explorers. Not only did he discover the Titanic, more on that later, but he also led expeditions to the Bismarck, the Lusitania, JFK's PT-109, and the USS Yorktown. He was also a consultant on the TV series Sequest DSV, which we will forgive him for. Now in his 70s, Dr. Ballard is leading a new effort, and you can take part. If you visit NautilusLive.org, you'll see live video from the exploration vehicle Nautilus and her ROVs Argus and Hercules. They regularly explore the oceans looking for the things the scientific public are interested in. It works like this. Scientists submit proposals for areas they'd like to explore, whether they be biological, archaeological, or just unknown. A committee reviews these, and when all the various factors have been weighed, the mission is scheduled. Funding comes from NOAA grants, donations from educational institutions, and the Ocean Exploration Trust, which was founded in 2008 by Dr. Ballard to sponsor private, public exploration efforts, with all data gathered being released as open source. The exploration is quite interesting. The large ROV Argo is lowered down, and the smaller, more maneuverable Hercules is attached to it. This isolates Hercules from the movement of the ship completely and also allows Argo to take an overhead view of the entire operation. So where do you fit in? If you're a scientist, you can certainly submit a proposal. If you're a private individual, you can make a donation or simply watch the excitement from their high-definition live stream. But if you'd like to, you're invited to engage with the crew while they're working. You can ask questions in real time and get answers from the various ROV operators, biologists, geologists, archaeologists, and even Dr. Ballard himself, should he be on station. As an experiment, we tried this, and not only did we have our question answered, we were able to offer some useful information to help identify a ship that had been sunk by the Navy. Much of the identification work is crowdsourced by the viewers, and while an expert will always give a definitive answer, your knowledge of ships, marine life, or even your ability to Google effectively could help the crew take the most advantage of their time underwater. If you'd like to give it a try, that URL again is nautiluslive.org, and we'll have a link in our show notes. It seems like we mention the Titanic a lot on this show, and why not? It's a fascinating story with lots of odd connections and happenings. And of course, one of those involves Dr. Ballard, but maybe not in the way it seems. 
In September of 1985, Dr. Ballard and his team announced that their new remotely operated vehicle, Argo, yes, the same one you can watch working right now, had discovered the wreck of the Titanic. Only a few people knew that the expedition was funded by the U.S. Navy, and even fewer knew why. Ballard had approached the Navy and asked for funding to launch Argo in search of the Titanic, but they weren't interested. At first. Then they realized that two of their missing nuclear submarines, the Scorpion and the Thresher, were in the general vicinity of the Titanic. Ballard had provided them with two things, a way to explore those wrecks and a plausible cover story. They agreed to the funding only under conditions that they got to explore the submarines first and then Ballard could look for the Titanic in what time remained. Ballard agreed. Dr. Ballard did find Titanic on that mission with the Argo, but time was so limited that he determined to come back with the manned submersible Alvin with which the wreck site was completely surveyed. Ballard kept the location a secret in hopes that it wouldn't be desecrated, but eventually the location was released and the pieces you see in Titanic exhibits like the one in Las Vegas were taken from the wreck site causing considerable damage. Paper or plastic? If you're environmentally conscious, the answer is obviously paper. Or is it? San Francisco recently banned plastic bags, so that seems to settle the argument. But when you take a look at the complications of the decision, it's not so easy. First off, plastic bags are already a form of recycling. Polyethylene is a byproduct of petroleum production, and it's a cheap, easy-to-use substance for bag making. Plastic bags are significantly lighter, allowing them to be transported for less money and for less fuel use. But, you say, paper bags are a renewable resource, and they biodegrade. Not so fast. Polyethylene is a waste resource, which means it's superior to a renewable resource. We are sacrificing no resources to make plastic bags. As for biodegradability, it turns out that plastic bags and paper bags decompose at similar rates when buried in a landfill. And that rate is... Very, very slow. And since paper bags take up 80% more space than plastic bags, they're actually worse for landfills. But paper bags can be made out of recycled paper. That's a definite win for paper. True, but the process of making paper bags out of recycled paper actually uses more energy than making new bags. And both new and old paper bags cost far more energy and produce far more pollution than the plastic bags. Also, paper bag production uses three times more water than plastic bag manufacturing. And though facilities are limited, plastic bags can be recycled into other plastic bags efficiently. So, wow, plastic really is better. Well, not so fast. Plastic has some problems, too. If you live near any sort of a city, it's not unlikely you'll find plastic bags tangled in bushes and trees. Paper bags will actually degrade if left alone in the gutter or woods. And animals aren't bothered by paper, whereas plastic can be deadly. Six-pack rings have long been known to endanger wildlife, but the bigger problem now is sea life that mistakes floating bags for jellyfish. Once consumed, the indigestible plastic often kills the animal, be it a turtle, whale, or bird. Ah, you say, you have the answer. Take your canvas bags when you go to the supermarket, market, market. Don't you use those plastic ones, no, no, no. Canvas bags. Even Tim Minchin agrees. 
Yes, reusable bags are a good solution, but they have some inherent problems. First, you have to remember to bring them. This means you have to plan your trip, and you can't just stop home on the way from work unless you thought to have some bags in the car. For many people, this reason alone prevents them from using canvas or reusable plastics. Another thing people don't think about is hygiene. Reusable bags are easily contaminated by meat juices and dirt from produce. After only a few uses, it's not unlikely that they're harboring bacteria or fungus. While your chances of getting sick are pretty small, it is something to think about. So what's the best solution? The answer is, it depends. If you can use plastic bags and diligently take them in for recycling, that might be the best option. Reusable bags are also great for the diligent. Paper bags are good for environmentally sensitive areas near rivers and seashores and have the added benefit of making great recycling holders. You can just throw the whole bag in with all your mixed recyclables. Now that you have the information, you can make the best choice for you. Can you be fooled by a tongue twister if you don't have a tongue? Let's find out. I'll say a tongue twister and then the computer will also say it. Who will do better? Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked? Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peck of pickled peppers that Peter Piper picked? Sounds pretty much like a tie there. Let's make things a little more difficult. Betty Botter bought some butter. But, she said, this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it will make my batter bitter. But a bit of better butter will but make my batter better. Then she bought a bit of butter, better than the bitter butter, made her bitter batter better. So twas Betty better bit. So twas better Betty. So twas better Betty Botter bought a bit of better. Ah, the hell with it. Betty Botter bought a bit of butter. The butter Betty Botter bought was a bit bitter and made her batter bitter. But a bit of better butter makes better butter. So Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter, making Betty Botter's bitter batter better. I have to give it to the computer there. Now, one that I have never been able to do successfully. The toy boat one. Toy boat, 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 toy boat. Toy boat, 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 toy boat. No contest there, the computer wins. The problem with tongue twisters in humans seems to be related to two things. The sounds use the same neural pathways, and our brains expect repetition. If you use the same pathway for two different things in a short amount of time, errors are likely to creep in. You have to use more of your slow-thinking mind to do something that's usually accomplished by your fast-thinking mind. The other factor is one of dexterity. Your tongue moves with muscles, just like your arms or legs. It has a muscle memory, and when it's asked to do something new, it's unlikely that you say toy boat ten times in a row. It trips and stumbles, just like someone might struggle with their first golf swing. Combined, you have a unique problem in human speech. Computers, of course, just produce the sounds indicated by their programming. They can do the same thing over and over in exactly the same way. And in an ironic twist, trying to make computers sound more human means we've given them some of our inabilities to do tongue twisters. Tell me a tongue twister. Okay, how's this? She sells she shells by the seashore. Wow, that's not easy. Here goes. She sells seashells by the seashore. 
Hey, I did it. That's it for this time. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, from the College of Curiosity. And if you'd like to learn more about the things we've talked about today, visit our website at collegeofcuriosity.com. Look for the Oddments link, and you'll find show notes for this and all of our other episodes. 